This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, a podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. You can subscribe and download episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can follow us on our social media pages. And while you're at it, I would love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. Today, I want to talk about two concepts that I cover a lot with my clients as we're working together. And so the first concept is that of reparenting. And the second concept would be, um, you know, connecting to or developing your authentic self. Now, I think these are related concepts, but I also think each one is a standalone concept. And I think when our parents do a good enough job in parenting ourselves, often that's enough to create a foundation for us to develop and connect or act from our authentic self. And when we don't get good enough parenting, this is where, you know, reparenting that younger self as an adult for us to go back and reparent that younger self then will lead to developing and acting from an authentic self. So let's start out with reparenting. Reparenting yourself is a pretty complex process. As humans, we take a long time to grow up and mature into functional adulthood. Humans tend to be late bloomers when compared to other primates, spending almost twice as long in childhood and adolescence as chimps, gibbons, or macaws do. One widely accepted but hard-to-test theory for why this is the case is that children's brains consume so much energy that they divert glucose from the rest of the body, which slows growth. Currently, there is a clever study of glucose uptake and body growth in children that confirms this hypothesis. There's research now that the brain is not fully developed until somewhere between the ages of 22 and 25 years old in terms of full development of the frontal lobe, which is a long period of time in which we as humans need parenting or we're being influenced by our environment. And yet through the centuries, there hasn't been a huge amount of education about parenting or the parenting experts gave parenting advice that in my opinion, the parents of that particular time period were capable of doing. We had many time periods throughout history where parents were traumatized from what was happening, what had happened, what they were experiencing, that asking them to attune to their children probably just wasn't going to happen. They couldn't attune to themselves because they were carrying so much trauma. And unfortunately, many of us didn't receive the parenting that really would have helped us grow into secure, functional, fulfilled, well-adjusted humans who can live our potential and do so being emotionally regulated, coming from a place of security and having a feeling of safety. So you might ask, what can I do to repair myself so that I can get to that place? If that didn't happen for you, how does reparenting work? So one thing I think is important to understand is that because now that we're adults, we have resources that were not accessible to us as kids. We have strategies and capabilities and ways of understanding and thinking that can help us reparent ourselves. Now, for some people, there is going to be grief or loss. They're going to experience. They're going to feel that and need to work through that before they're open to the concept of reparenting themselves. Maybe they already feel like they had to do it all on their own with no safety net or protection or guidance. And so here I am saying an important part of your healing will be to reparent yourself. And maybe you hear that and think, are you kidding me? Maybe the idea that you now have to go back and do this makes you angry. And that's okay if that's your response. You might not be in a place to listen to the rest of this podcast episode. You may have to save it and come back to it at another time period. That is okay. You might have some steps ahead of you before you're ready for reparenting yourself. Is that wrong? No. Is it sad? Yeah. It's sad that the adult you needed, the adult that would show up and do and say what you needed, is your grown-up self. It isn't fair, and that's a hard story, and you get to feel what you need to around your life narrative that allows you to move to a place where you're ready for healing, however that comes. Now, I also think it's important to say here 
This work isn't being done at the beginning of therapy. This work happens when there's been some work already done, some understanding and awareness has happened. We've started to build a solid enough foundation in therapy that we can build on it. And the timing of this work has to be right. Or the client ends up feeling like something's wrong with them, or it can reinforce negative beliefs about their abilities. They might feel like, I'm not doing it right. I'm not smart enough. I'm not getting it. I'm not enough. There have certainly been times when I'm working with a client and I kind of test the water, so to speak, just to see how the client responds and if they can hear or take what I'm saying. And it's too early, which is fine. It just lets me know we have more prep work and more foundation building to do before we're ready to start the reparenting work. And until they're able to start reparenting themselves, that's a role that as the therapist, I'll step into. There can also be, like I said, some grief and loss that comes up as we start to replace those negative or critical parenting voices with a positive inner parenting voice. You might notice a lot of emotion comes up as you begin to hear what you needed in a therapy session. Or you might feel a lot of emotion as you begin to feel your therapist attuning to you, seeing you, knowing you, accepting you. And then as you begin to understand what healthy parenting or good enough parenting looks and feels like, there, there can be a lot of emotion and sorrow and grief that comes up with that. It's not an uncommon thing for me to be sitting with a client who's telling me a story about a previous time in their life. Maybe they're in kindergarten or fourth grade or eighth grade, whatever. And they finish telling me the story and I'll ask them, what did you need in that moment? What, what did you need somebody to tell you? What did you need to feel in that moment? What did you need somebody to do for you? I might ask them what they're feeling right now in your body as you're sharing this story with me. And when they identify what they're feeling and I ask what they needed, it's not uncommon that they know. And I will also say it's not an unreasonable need. Typically, what clients report needing or wanting in that moment is something that is absolutely appropriate. It's not some outlandish wish or what would seem like some unrealistic expectation. It's usually something along the lines of being seen, being held, being protected, having somebody advocate for them, being affirmed, being told they're valuable, they're lovable. Now, maybe it is unrealistic given the family system that they grew up in and that what their parents were able to do, which is why we're at this place of reparenting and therapy. And often I will say like, yeah, that shouldn't be such a hard thing for that younger self to get. Like it shouldn't have taken this long for you to hear that from somebody. So let's talk here for a minute about what the role of a parent is. And again, we could, you know, pull from a lot of different definitions about what the role of a parent is. I've pulled from some different concepts about what a parent is, and I know I'm missing some, and that's okay for today. I would say that most people agree it's the responsibility of the parents to meet the basic needs of their children, to keep that child safe, clothed, housed, fed, all of those basic needs. And in addition to this, a parent's role is to prepare and help the child grow up, to be independent, to be functional, to be a healthy adult and to have and be part of healthy relationships and to be able to be a fully functioning adult who can self-actualize, create a meaningful life where they feel connected to themselves and others and can contribute to the world around them. Just a small little thing, right? I'm just kidding. It's that's it's kind of a big undertaking when you step back and think about it in those terms. In episode 246 of my podcast, I talk about childhood emotional neglect and kind of talk about emotional things that parents are also responsible for in part of their parenting roles and responsibilities. So if you want more information on that, I would say go listen to that episode. And I'm not going to repeat myself here in this episode. For those of us born into a family where one or both parents had some type of significant dysfunction, whether it was mental illness or an addiction or a history of trauma, or simply they hadn't been parented well themselves, there will be many areas of parenting that they come up short in or where they have blind spots because they did not receive adequate parenting themselves. 
So reparenting is about learning to do for yourself and giving yourself what your parents were not able to give you. It's learning to truly care for yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually as both a unique and imperfect human being who has worth and value. It's being able to attune to yourself and emotionally regulate what you're feeling and experiencing. So how do we reparent ourselves in these moments when the emotions seem really big? Maybe they seem overwhelming or they are threatening to overwhelm us. They're pushing us towards the edge of our window of tolerance. Maybe you are thinking of or you know some people who seem to naturally know how to emotionally regulate or how to respond in moments where someone is feeling upset in a way that de-escalates the emotions instead of escalating the emotions. I think if we you know, had videotapes of this, what we would see for a parent who was able to regulate their child, and I do believe, I didn't look this up before because it just dawned on me now, there is, I'm not even remembering who puts it out, but there is something on uh, YouTube that like, let's say a pediatric association or a hospital or something like that puts out that is, it kind of breaks up childhood into, you know, initially the first year into months and then years and stages of development and talks about like what the child needs and what healthy parenting looks like. So we do have more resources where you can, you know, be able to see literally see a video and watch that happen in order to get an idea of what that looks like for you. But I would say for a parent who is able to regulate their child, the parent first is okay with the child showing and expressing their emotions, any of their emotions. And those emotions don't seem too big or threatening or overwhelming for the parent. So if the child's upset or crying, you know, the parent might soften their voice they might use physical affection or touch to help calm the child. This could look like for a young child, the parent holding and rocking the child, picking them up and bringing them in for a hug, holding them. Or, you know, if they're if they're too old to kind of pick up and hold, maybe it's sitting down next to them, acknowledging, you know, again, using physical touch, physical affection, but acknowledging what you see and what you feel, for example. Maybe something like, hey, I can see you're upset. Do you want to talk about it? Now, maybe they don't want to talk about it, or maybe they do. But I think what's important is to point out what is needed in this moment isn't necessarily problem solving. We're not asking them to talk about it so that we can help them solve the problem. We're asking them to talk about it so that they can feel seen and affirmed in that moment. That's our job as the parent is to see them and to affirm them. And, and maybe we say, you know, that sounds like a really hard situation. I do think you can figure out what's right to do. Or if you want to ask me for questions, you know, ask questions or we continue talking about it, that's a tough place. If we want to continue talking about it until you feel like you know what is right for you to do, then we can do that. Again, that's going to vary depending on the age of the child. But again, we're not trying to help the child problem solve because that's not what they're needing necessarily. What we're doing is we're emotionally regulating them. We're using attachment language such as, I'm here with you. This seems really hard, or I can see that this feels really heavy for you. I want you to know you don't have to feel this alone. I'm right here, not going anywhere. That That's kind of the attachment language. Maybe a parent sits with the child. You know, if they're having problems falling asleep and getting some good sleep, the parent says, I'm happy to come in and I'll sit with you while you fall asleep. I'll make sure everything's safe and okay. A key thing to keep in mind is that in order for the parent to emotionally regulate the child, and maybe this goes without saying, but the parent has to be emotionally regulated themselves. So if maybe you've had the experience as a parent, I know I did, where the baby or the toddler just won't settle down. Maybe you're trying to get them to sleep. And the more you're trying to get them to settle down and go to sleep, the more upset or hyped up they get and the more frustrated you become and then the more upset and frustrated the child becomes or the more that the baby cries you know children and infants or toddlers regulate or dysregulate based on the nervous systems of the people they are around they kind of just i usually say they just kind of plug into your nervous system and match the level you're at so it's important to keep in mind that you cannot regulate your child when you yourself are dysregulated. Like 
our we our body's not going to lie to this child who is plugging into our nervous system. So it might be helpful before you engage or interact with the child for you to check in with yourself, maybe take a few minutes, do some deep breathing, regulate yourself if needed to prepare to go in and then perform the job of helping to regulate your child. Now, I usually tell clients that children are not emotionally aware in an intellectual way. They have a sense. They pick up on the emotions of their atmosphere in their bodies, even if they maybe don't have thoughts or that awareness doesn't actually translate in their brain to thoughts and knowledge and awareness. Like I said, kids will plug into the nervous system of adults that they are with and they match or move their nervous system to align with the adult's level of emotional regulation. Now, other times as parents, we need to use our emotional energy to change the emotions going on with our children. If they're fighting with each other, we're probably not going to respond. They will not respond well to us if we come in and start yelling at them. And we're yelling louder than they're yelling at each other. Maybe we need to pull attention away from the arguing or hitting, not as a way of really bypassing the emotions, but in a way that de-escalates the emotions and stops the escalation or, you know, the escalating conflict. And then we can go back and we can talk about the emotions. We can talk about that particular situation once there's more emotional regulation that's happening for our kids and ourselves. Now, sometimes a soft, gentle voice is helpful in regulating a child. Sometimes a soft, gentle voice may not be enough to change the temperature of the emotions. I'm not advocating here that you should yell at your kids. I think there's a lot of ways of getting attention that don't involve yelling. You can be firm and authoritative without ever raising your voice. Sometimes as a parent, you might need to energize yourself as a way to motivate the kids to clean up their toys, put things away. Okay, let's get going. Let's get this done. Yes, nobody wants to do this, but we got to get it done. So, you know, can you use your energy to help bring that uh, motivation or that level of energy for the kids to get it done. Now, maybe here the parent might increase the volume of their voice in order to energize the emotions or pull the emotion away from conflict, but it's not done in a way of like yelling at the children. It's, it's raising our voice in a way of maybe calling attention to us in a way that helps the child learn to emotionally regulate and manage their own emotions eventually, not like not that day, right? So I want to talk about some of the common areas that I see clients need reparenting in. Now, there's going to be more areas that I'm going to talk about, and some may resonate with you, or it might get you thinking of other areas that I don't talk about. That's fine. I'm just talking about some of the common ones that I see with clients. But I will acknowledge there are some with clients that aren't necessarily common, but it's necessary for that particular client. So let's look at some of these common areas where reparenting may be needed. Number one, I think we might need to reparent ourselves around validating our emotions. Validating a child's emotions is a key part of how a parent helps the child learn to regulate their emotions. If the parent simplifies the emotions or minimizes what the child is feeling, then the child receives the messages that their emotions are too much for their parents. Maybe the child complies externally if parents simplify or minimize their emotions, but internally it's going to create anxiety, a sense of isolation or loneliness, and a disconnection from their authentic self. So questions for you to think about in this area. Can you validate your own emotions? How do you feel about your emotions? Are you willing to validate yourself when you get angry? Are there certain emotions that make you very uncomfortable with? Could you understand there's probably a reason you feel these emotions? And can you give permission for you to feel those emotions to the extent that you need to? Can you validate your feelings when you feel sad or lonely or frustrated? Or are you always saying to yourself, I shouldn't feel this way. I shouldn't feel this way. If you're saying I shouldn't feel this way, my guess is you were parented in a way where you had a parent who couldn't validate your feelings. And that parent, for whatever reason, couldn't tolerate your more difficult emotions and didn't want you to be feeling those. Now, sometimes it is because they love us and they just are inadequate. They feel their own inadequacy. And so, you know, it hurts them to see that we're hurting and not be able to help. 
But if they couldn't deal with those feelings in themselves, it is going to be difficult for them to manage them or help you manage them when they come up for yourself. Now, the second area here when it comes to validation and emotional regulation is about whether you have the tools to regulate your emotions. Again, this is something we learn or we don't learn based on the adults in our lives. So maybe when we start to feel too anxious, do you have the tools to calm yourself down? If you feel unenergetic or lethargic and you have stuff you have to get done, can you lift yourself up and regulate in order to get done what you need to get done? And how does that work for you? What are those tools? What do they look like? Another question to ask are, are your emotions frequently overwhelming to the point where you can't deal with them or you shut down into some numbness? Either of those would be signals that reparenting yourself and learning some of these tools and being kind towards yourself as you practice them can be really helpful. Sometimes I'll also say kids often come feeling emotions quite intensely without the vocabulary or ability to say what they're feeling. And they are reliant on their caregivers to not just learn emotional vocabulary and emotional intelligence, but also to learn how to regulate themselves in healthy ways. So that could be an area where reparenting is needed. Another way we may need to reparent ourselves is in areas where we weren't allowed to struggle. We weren't supported or encouraged in the challenges we faced as kids. Now this can happen on a continuum from learning to tie our shoes, learning how to read, learning a sport or a musical instrument, where our parents just didn't have the patience for that learning process, or they didn't know, or they weren't supported in their own learning process. So it triggers insecurities and unresolved fears for the parent. And those insecurities or fears are then projected or displaced onto the child. And we kind of become responsible for the fears and insecurities of our parents. So we may need some reparenting in areas where we struggle or we face challenges that are just a normal part of life. Maybe it's in our adult life, or maybe it was times that we have to go back and reparent. We might need to give ourselves permission to take time to actually move through the challenge or figure out the challenge or even just feel challenged and give ourselves permission for things to be hard sometimes. To acknowledge that sometimes we fail and we're still a good person. As a therapist, I often have to give permission for clients to be overwhelmed or to struggle in their sobriety. We may have talked about a concept in therapy or in group therapy, and maybe intellectually they understand the concept, but they still struggle with it behaviorally. And I'll tell them, it's okay, you'll, you'll get it, you'll get there. Until they're able to talk to themselves this way. So again, giving permission for struggles for trying, for learning, for not being successful and continuing to try and allowing for the emotions. Yeah, it can be frustrating for things to not work out or to take longer than we think it should. So accepting the emotions that you feel while also still believing in yourself and your ability to accomplish what you're working on. I think that frustration is a normal part of the learning process. And there is a difference in how we respond to the frustration in a way that shuts us down or, you know, we become critical and hard on ourselves instead of learning to channel the frustration in a way that leads to perseverance or resiliency. Another common area where people might need reparenting includes feeling like you're allowed to have needs and wants. I think this is such a huge one. You know, sometimes I... We'll just kind of get a feel for what the family rules or the family um, expectations were around that. I might ask, like, what was it like on your birthday getting gifts? What was it like at Christmas? You know, kind of looking at gifts because that's kind of a way that kids start to learn about needs and wants. You know, maybe they didn't ask for what they needed because they knew what they wanted or needed would put a burden on the family. Sometimes my clients will say, I usually got what I asked for. But then it always came back to bite me. Like, for example, you know, maybe they would get the birthday gift that they really wanted. But then later, if the parent didn't feel like they were appreciative or showing enough gratitude three months later, they're like, oh, my gosh, I gave you this gift and you're not even appreciative of all that I do for you. Right. So it was like, yeah, I got what I wanted, but it came with some strings attached or I never knew when that was kind of going to boomerang back and 
come back in a negative way. Sometimes we talk about needs as maybe, yeah, maybe they're necessary. Like you have a need for food, you have a need for water, you have a need for clothes, shelter, things like that. But there might be a different attitude about wants. It's like, okay, yes, you can have needs as a human, but wants? Well, now you're just being greedy. So it can be an interesting area to explore with yourself, to explore with your friends, to see what the differences are, um, to explore with your therapist. How do you relate to your needs? Are you comfortable expressing your needs in a reasonable, assertive, not aggressive way, but also not a passive way? Can you find balance in terms of meeting your own needs or asking others for help in meeting your needs? Are you clear on what your needs are versus your wants? Not that one has more weight or value on one or the other. I think both needs and wants are important in our development, but can we differentiate what's a need versus a want? What comes out for you when it doesn't work out, when you don't get what you want or you don't get what you need? Another way, an interesting way I find with clients that's interesting to explore is do you know when you've gotten enough? Not just enough and now I'm uncomfortable kind of thing, but really like I absolutely got enough of what I needed. I got the right amount of love or care or support. It was just what I needed. I have enough. Sometimes it's that like if there was some scarcity around it, we might have enough, but we keep getting more and more and more because that scarcity mentality says it might dry up or it might not be there. Whether that's money, whether it's doing enough at work, knowing like when I've done enough, whether it's the right amount of love or care or support, doing enough for those you love, and then not always feeling guilty for not giving more or not having more. Now, the people I work with most often fall into the group of people who feel like they're really not supposed to have needs or their needs aren't not as important as other people's. So again, this is an area for you to explore and to figure out where you need reparenting as a way of healing. The fourth area to explore is around self-talk. Is it negative? Is it critical? Are you overly harsh? Maybe you have some core negative beliefs that developed very early in life, or you internalized either a parent's very critical voice or you internalize the voice, you know, that your parent had almost by osmosis. So again, negative self-talk can be a sign that reparenting work would be very helpful. I think, again, a healthy parent in this situation, like sometimes kids pick that up at school or from their peers and sports teams or whatever, where they can, you know, like if another kid on the team talks harshly to themselves or another parent does or the coach does, or a teammate talks negatively to your child, you know, they might pick up that voice and start being like, you're so stupid. Why did you do that? Like you lost the whole game. And again, a healthy parent would be like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Like, that's not fair. That's not, why aren't we talking so like, yeah, the game didn't go the way you wanted to, but you didn't win or lose the game all yourself. Like this is a team process. Somebody has to lose. Somebody has to win. You can't win them all. Like, but kind of intervening and being like, let's not talk that way about ourselves. Like, why are you putting such a critical voice to the way that you performed or something it would look like that. The fifth area one might need reparenting is in the area of what I call reasonable self-discipline. The issues in this area can manifest or be expressed by maybe looking like overly self-disciplined to the point where there's denial of basic wants and needs. So it, it can kind of cross over. Some of these areas cross over into the other areas like Reasonable self-discipline might cross over into the wants and needs, but it can also look like denial of pleasure, uh, difficulty spending money, under-earning. It can lean towards the other end of the spectrum and look like a lack of self-discipline, where this could manifest as like constantly overspending, high debt, always giving yourself what you want, maybe consistently staying up later than you should or not getting an adequate amount of sleep and rest recharge, you know, reparenting might look like eating meals on time, having balance routines. It can look like, you know, that when it's not done in healthy ways, it can look like pushing yourself all the time or always taking on more responsibilities than you can accomplish. 
It might look like continual procrastination and then getting things done under the heat of the deadline. And then all of these things I just listed off, it can also be expressed in the opposite way, right? Not being able to follow through or complete a task, not really being functional, maybe sleeping too much as a way of avoiding eating too much or eating food that doesn't adequately nourish and fuel our bodies. Numbing out to TV instead of working on a project that we need to be working on. So healthier, balanced self-discipline is connected to joy, feelings of joy. So sometimes, too, we might work for something and it might go well and we deny ourselves the ability to actually feel the reward of feeling the joy and taking pleasure in the hard work, feeling like or complimenting ourselves or, you know, to the people we love or whatever, being like, high five for me. Yay, look at me. I just did this hard thing. So self-discipline can actually be connected to feeling good about yourself, being able to esteem yourself, enjoying the world right, or as Einstein is reported to say, seeing the world as a friendly place, feeling proud when we learn something new, or feeling, you know, rewarded by, by having the tenacity to push through, to keep trying instead of just getting frustrated or giving up. So in this way, self-discipline connects to self-care that maybe we didn't learn to do well, wasn't modeled for us. We don't know how to balance that. Healthy or reasonable self-discipline connects to how we talk to ourselves. So again, looking at are there some shifts that need to be made through reparenting that part of yourself that can have, you know, I think Pia Melody talks about like being contained, right? Not being too much or too little but I can kind of live in this zone of this is who I am. Another area that you may need to focus on in reparenting yourself, this is area number six, if you're keeping track, is feeling special. Feeling like you belong, you're accepted. This is another role that parents are supposed to play in their child's life, is helping their child feel special, like they're part of a group, that they have an important role to play as part of the group, part of the family, and for parents to be able to delight in their child's specialness or what makes the child unique. This is going to help the child grow up in a way where they can express fully who they are and bring their unique talents to the world. So the element of delighting in that and how to delight in that while also helping the child learn that they're part of a community, they're part of a family, they're part of a group, where sometimes they have to balance the needs of others with their own in age-appropriate ways. That may be an area where you know, maybe as an adult, we accomplish something and we just kind of like, what's the word that I'm looking for? That we just kind of glide over that or gloss over that and are like, next. And we don't actually allow ourselves to take in the feeling of accomplishing that or that reward, the joy that comes with having done a good job. Reparenting is about rewiring your brain for joy and authentic confidence. It's about parenting yourself loving yourself, and taking care of yourself. It's about taking a look at what the environment was like for you as a child and as a teen. What were the influences in your life? Why you may have developed a self-image that isn't serving you or your ideas about the world, why did those develop? Often we'll look at the critical ages of development from zero to 25. Again, that's a long time period to be influence, that we're going to need parenting, that we're going to need guidance. So that's the time period when we're looking at reparenting. That's that time period that we're going to be looking at. Now, often people can have a really hard time believing that the negative self-talk or their negative self-image that they have so much later in life is tied to what happened to them in those early years. But we know that it is. Our emotional brain is forming between zero and ten. In those years, we're absorbing everything, and our brain is being programmed during that time. So reparenting is really about rewiring our brains. It does take a lot of work, but the work can be done at any age. So how do we do that? Well, we look to find the facts so that then you can rewire what's going on in you, rewire how you're functioning today in your present life. Reparenting, I think it's important to know, is not about anybody else changing. It's not about your parents changing so that now they can give you the parenting that you needed way back when. It's not about anybody else changing at all. It is not about anybody else healing. 
It is about the current you going back and reparenting the younger you in the areas you needed and didn't get. Now let's pivot into the next concept I wanted to talk about. So that concept I wanted to talk about is it's connected to reparenting in that reparenting yourself is about developing a new relationship with yourself and then acting and living from that place. So again, like I said at the beginning, when a child has had good enough parenting that builds a foundation for the authentic self and living from that authentic self. And so, yes, the other concept that I want to talk about that is connected to reparenting is developing that authentic self and, and living from that authentic self. Now, I'm not, I'm not really talking about these two concepts as if they're interchangeable, reparenting and having this authentic self that can stand up and live life are two different things. But yes, reparenting or parenting in a way that is good enough does lead to this other concept. Healthy parenting leads to living in our authentic self, or in other words, reparenting allows us to live from our authentic self. So what does that look like? Once we have an understanding of ourselves and we have insight into our life narrative, its impact on us and the whys of what we do, and this awareness and understanding doesn't trap us in the past stories and experiences, we can now start to connect mind, body, and spirit. Or we can, you know, think about it connecting the mind, the heart mind, and the gut mind. This is an empowered place to be. Not empowered as in I have power over another. No, not that. Just I can live from this place of personal power and not spend a great deal of my energy suppressing parts of my life narrative. So in the past, we had to suppress what our hearts felt. We had to suppress what we felt in our guts. But now that we've explored those hidden storylines and we've brought them into our conscious awareness and understanding, we actually have access to what we felt in our heart, what we felt in our gut. And we can understand those things in our thoughts and our awareness. I think here we start to understand how important emotions are. And we start to have a sense of awe and respect and wonderment for ourselves, for the world around us and for those in our lives. In this new relationship we have with ourselves and our understanding of our story and its impact, when we have that in perspective, I think we start to feel bigger, like not in a grandiose way of feeling bigger, but in a way of like what I would say is self-actualization. Or if we break out what self-actualization means, it would be a connection to our full potential and our personal meaning whether that's through creativity, independence, spontaneity, and we would have a grasp of the real world and a connection to reality. Now, I don't want to end here on a negative note, and I'm not quite at the end, but I do want to give this disclaimer. I don't think it's necessarily negative, but more just informing about the reality of this process. I think that self-actualization is a destructive or a deconstructive process. It's not necessarily Self-actualization isn't necessarily about being happier, per se, because to get to self-actualization, we have to kind of go to this crumbling away of what we thought was truth. It's the crumbling away of untruth. It's seen through the facade of pretense. It's the eradication of everything we imagined to be true or we needed to believe it to be true for our own comfort. And instead, we're starting to break away from that history that painted a happy picture of the truth instead of the actual truth that usually is uncomfortable, distressing, it might be painful, but we have to see in order to connect with our whole self and to live in reality and be engaged with our world. Now, when I'm beginning to work with a new client who is coming in reporting maybe some compulsive sexual behavior, maybe the possibility of sexual addiction, one of the first things that we start to discuss in the first session, maybe not in the first session, but once we're determining there's, there's a likelihood that addiction is, is present, we're starting to talk about the concept that addiction is an illness of escape. It's an alternative to letting oneself feel hurt, betrayal, worry, and most painful of all, loneliness. The hardest challenge for some addicts is acknowledging that they have a problem. In the workbook, Facing the Shadow by Dr. Patrick Carnes that we use as CSATs, Dr. Carnes says, quote, addiction cripples the core ability 
to know what is real, our most essential skill. Addicts weave a string of rationalizations and delusions that make it impossible to cope with details like job or families. He continues, addiction often begins simply. Reality becomes too much to bear, so we try to escape through drugs, alcohol, or sex. Escaping reality for even the briefest of times brings some relief. But when escaping becomes habitual, we have a mental illness known as addiction. If mental health can be defined, as M. Scott Peck says, as a commitment to reality no matter what the cost, then addiction can be defined as its most direct opposite, evading reality no matter the cost. So starting in this place with a new client starts to bring us to the first exercise that we ask clients to complete. And you could also start with this. You may or may not identify with the addiction label, but this can be helpful when we're starting to look at this process of connecting to reality and what needs to be reparented in order for the authentic self to develop. So the first step of this exercise is we ask them to list what they think their problems are. So this isn't just specific to maybe their sexual behaviors that might be bringing them in, but it's an important list of all the problems that they're aware of in their life at that time. And then second, as they start to review these problems with their therapist, notice what secrets they have, or in other words, how many situations in their life can they find in which other people are actually unaware of the truth. And then the third step in this simple exercise is what excuses or rationales do you use for your problems or to keep them secret? Now, this simple exercise helps the client, it helps the therapist gain awareness of the cleanup that needs to be done related to the messes and contradictions the client is living with. There's also an awareness that in order to be yourself, what you intend to do needs to be congruent with who you're becoming. So we start to look at like where there is misalignment, where there are incongruencies and like, you know, kind of making a choice. Who do you want to be? Which person are we going to be? You have to sort out what matters to you. Not a list of values that somebody else tells you should be your value list, but you have to go through the process of determining for yourself what matters to you and then what you look and act like based on that. Shafali Sabari describes this as coming to terms with the, quote, great forgetting. In her book, The Awakened Family, she describes how families take childhood dreams and talents and bend them or discard them to fit their version of reality. How the parents see themselves or how they think others perceive them usually affects the standards they hold out and offer to their own children. Now, we might have some clues about this. What was forgotten, this great forgetting, based on family stories that are told about us. So one of the stories my mom used to tell about me is that how as a young girl, I was always worried about what was fair or unfair. And I would try to advocate for fairness if I thought somebody was being unfair. And this would cause problems with the neighbor kids, that if I thought they were unfair, I would call them out or point that out, and I would want them to correct that in order to be fair. Or one time she tells the story, I was walking to school. I was, I think I was like in the first grade. I was walking to school with other kids in the neighborhood. And I think the story goes that like one kid was kind of late getting to the group so that we could start walking and the other kids didn't want to wait for this kid. And they started walking without that kid. And I got really upset about this whole situation. And I think if I'm remembering correctly, one kid might've started crying and I'm not exactly sure how my mom found out about it. I think a, a child started crying. I mean, I, I don't think at that point I hit anybody. That came in sixth grade. No, I'm, I'm not kidding, but that I don't think at that point I hit anybody yet. But I think I made somebody feel bad, and they ran home and told their mom, and then that mom told my mom. I think that's how my mom found out. And she, you know, she would say to me, or when she told this story, she would kind of, you know, kind of the moral of the story was like, Life isn't fair, Jackie. You have to realize that life isn't fair and that it's not your place to try to make it fair. That was kind of the gist of those types of stories that were told about me. Now, I will say as an adult, I totally believe that life is not fair. I still think it's sad that life isn't fair and that some people get way more suffering than other people do. I don't think that's fair, but I can understand that life is not fair. I think 
you know, it, it took some time. There was a time in my own healing where I had to reconnect with that younger version of myself and work to understand what she was feeling in those situations that couldn't be affirmed or seen as something of value by either of my parents. And that I had to reclaim the authentic trait that was missed in the telling of this story. I think for me, some of the language I put around it at that time was like, I, I don't have a problem with life not being fair, but I think that people should try to be fair. Now, I, I don't think it's surprising that I work in addiction, given that you know some of the unfairness that I was dealing with in my own family was caused by a father who had multiple addictions. But you know, it's not just being able to see that trait. It's seeing that trait as something of value and reclaiming this authentic trait that might have been missed by our parents or seen as a negative trait instead of a positive trait. So this process of awakening and remembering and reclaiming is an important part of being empowered and living your authentic life. I describe it as giving the authentic self the opportunity to stand up rather than staying silent. Now, in a later workbook that Dr. Carnes has as part of his model, he writes the following about this. He says, a paradox occurs when simultaneous truths exist that make it hard to resolve conflicted situations. Recovery at its core is living in paradoxes. For example, the serenity prayer is basically a paradox. Sometimes we simply have to let go because any action on our part will not help and may make it worse. At other times, we can and must take action. Knowing which action is the correct action can be very difficult in real-life situations. Recognition that this is your situation lowers anxiety and taps into your spiritual skill set. I think in this, like, you know, looking back, maybe had my mom been able to acknowledge this paradox, instead of being like, Jackie, life's not fair, you've got to accept that and stop trying to make it fair. You know, maybe what she was trying to say to me is like, sometimes you taking action makes things worse. Like that paradox, being able to talk about that paradox, sometimes it is the right thing to do to stand up and to advocate for somebody else or to advocate for yourself. Sometimes that is the right thing to do. Sometimes that's only going to make the matter worse. And you need to learn the wisdom to know what time and what is called for in this given moment. Now, maybe, maybe as a first grader, we would have had to like simplify the language a little bit for me to get it. But I think that would have been helpful for me instead of just kind of like dismissing whatever trait was trying to manifest. Carnes continues, he says, let's use another example that occurs often in intimate life. In recovery, you learn that you must be true to yourself. You build your inner trust core by being faithful to the commitments you make to yourself. This relationship with self is part of your covenant with yourself, which provides the internal cohesion not to sell yourself out. Yet in order to be intimate, you have to be true to agreements with your partner and faithful to your relationship. Such fidelity is the essence of showing up in intimacy. What happens when being true to yourself is in conflict with the needs of your partner? Here is the struggle of intimacy. All relationships have this struggle. Carl Jung said that this inevitable collision of fidelity to self and faithfulness to others is one of the most spiritual dimensions of being human. Both are true realities. Both are about what matters. He says the world is built on these paradoxes. Quantum physics has this problem at its core. Ask for a definition of light and you will get very different answers because it depends on your perspective. Sometimes light's energy is like waves. Other times light acts like a bundle of rods. Similarly, in understanding addiction, is it a brain problem? Yes. Is it an intimacy disorder and an attachment disorder? Yes. Is it all about trauma and stress? Yes. Is it primarily a problem of the family? Yes. It all matters in your perspective. Problems occur when there are equally valid ways of looking at things. He says in The Road Less Traveled, Scott Peck opens with this sentence, life is difficult. He is saying that all of us will experience times of trouble. In The Lord of the Rings, Frodo Baggins complains to the wizard Gandalf that he wished he had never got involved with the ring. In fact, he regrets even starting the journey. Gandalf responds by saying, so do we all in difficult times. Gandalf then observes that the test is not the challenges we are given, it is how we handle them. It is not about fairness or justice or our efforts. 
but how we deal with the hand we have been dealt. He continues and he says, when you find yourself in choices where both sides, and sometimes many sides, of a dilemma are valid, recognizing the paradox helps your inner observer stay calm rather than letting the brain debate and argue all sides. Ultimately, he says, it is about perspective and what matters. The inner observer is the core of the self and the seat of the soul. It will know what to do. In Diana Gabelman's epic series, Outlander, she tells the story of a woman who ends up as a physician living in both the 20th century and then in the 18th. The heroine is Claire, who loves Jamie, a Scottish noble who survives the wars in Scotland, after which the two of them go together to America, where they witness the beginning of the French and Indian War. Claire, because her 20th century medical knowledge and values, finds herself frequently very conflicted in what are very dramatic times. Gabaldon, the author, has Jamie say to Claire in a difficult moment, if you ever find yourself in the midst of paradox, you can be sure you stand on the edge of truth. You may not know what it is, mind, but it's there. Karn says, nowhere have I found this description of paradox better said. Recovery often places us on the edge of truth. The edge is hard and sharp at times, yet the choices we make do define us. It is the matrices of these choices that bring and define our own spiritual lives. These edges of truth also take us from a life in which our choices are taken from us to a life where we live with intention. Intentionality is the path to living in the zone. Almost always this helps us to know who we really are, and it's what gives our life meaning. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and education and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I'm not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.